0: Today's episode is sponsored by Operation Reach Back Incorporated, the association of Black Seventh-day Adventist professionals. If you want to learn more about Operation Reach Back, go to OperationReachBack.com for more information. Your Bible Speaks Church family, it's Pastor Richardson here with another episode of the Your Bible Speaks Church podcast, Wednesday interview edition. It's Wisdom Wednesday. It's when we get a chance to talk to people who are important, who are heroes, ministry leaders, and today is no different. This Wednesday, I'm excited to announce and introduce our guest, Dr. Calvin B. Rock, former president of Oakwood University, former Vice President of the General Conference, the World Church, and uh, Founder and Chairman of Operation Reach Back. Dr. Rock is a phenomenal man of God. Dr. Rock is actually one of my heroes. And to be able to talk to someone who you admire and respect at the level that I respect with Dr. Rock is an honor and a privilege. So today I'm excited to talk with him and I hope that you find today's conversation a blessing. Before Dr. Rock and I have our conversation, one of the things I wanna tell you guys, Dr. Rock is a amazing thinker. Dr. Rock is one of the smartest men that I've ever had a chance to talk to. And you will see um, through this interview exactly how smart Dr. Rock is. But also Dr. Rock has helped facilitate and create and edit something called Social Justice in the Word of God. And if anyone knows me, where a lot of you do, I love Social Justice because it's at the center of God's ministry and God's work for the humanity and for the world. So Dr. Rock is a phenomenal thinker and teacher and philosopher, I dare to even say, about the topic. And so um, you heard about it in our Sabbath School discussion last week. And now you'll hear from one of the editors, Dr. Calvin B. Rock. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the distinct pleasure and privilege to be on the line with a hero of the gospel ministry, a veteran of gospel ministry, the author of many books, a preacher, a pastor, a leader, none other than Dr. Calvin B. Rock. Dr. Rock, thank you so much for joining us today on the Your Bible Speaks Church podcast.
1: My pleasure, Pastor Richardson. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, Dr. Rock, I would—I mentioned this to... Um, to just help bring the listeners to a kind of a how God works type speed. Um, if I go into my parents' um, like memory box, and I see something very very interesting, I see a wedding photo, and I see um, this tall man standing with my family, my parents, um, and it's Doctor Rock. Doctor Rock, you married my parents.
1: Yes.
0: In the and... High Park Church. Lo and behold, look what happened. You exactly. That is a that first. That's a testament to one your longevity and legacy and the goodness of God, but also (laughs) the fact that you know one type of rip one ripple how it can affect generations. So, Doctor Rock, when I was a kid, I grew up actually hearing about this really really important guy who um, is the grandfather of my cousin uh, David, little David, my aunt Celia. So I. I was like, okay, who's this guy? Who's this guy? And to be able to now have a chance to talk to you and see you as a mentor and a someone, that, a person of counsel, is a great privilege. So, Doctor Rock, enough about uh, family history. I, you're on the podcast today. We asked I asked you to be on this podcast today because you are um, when it, there's not a name more synonymous with social justice when discussing um, it within the context of the church than you. You've written the book protest in progress. Um, you were one of the pioneer black leaders alongside with, you know, all the greats that we could rattle off their names. You were the former um, vice president of the general conference. You were the eighth president of Oakwood University, both of our alma maters. You served on the board. Sorry, you were the, you were the chairman of the board of um, Loma Linda University for 11 years. And you also are the founder of, and the chairman of Operation Reachback?
1: That is true.
0: Yes. So all of these things, you've accomplished so much. And so, Dr. Rock, um, I guess my first question would be, um, when did you, tell me about your call to ministry. When did you feel the call to ministry?
1: Well, I I grew up in a well-founded, rooted Adventist family. My grandmother and her little John Bradford, my mother's mom, was one of the original 16 students at Oakwood in 1896. She accepted the message from the decks of the Morning Star, the boat built by Edson White, the son of our prophet, Ellen White, that he built on Lake Michigan and sailed down to the Mississippi River. And my grandmother accepted adventism when she was 14 or 15 years of age so i i I grew up in, in in the home of a mother who was very devoted to what her mother had discovered and what she'd been taught in fact her mother etta married robert bradford um who became and was a pastor in the church and he converted his father from presbyterianism in the Kansas area and he became a pastor and my mother's youngest brother, Charles Bradford, who died recently and about whom I think daily, (laughs) Uh, my wonderful uncle who was like a brother, but he was a minister. So, you know, I, I had a ministerial tradition and that influenced me Plus, I was uh, told by people in the church in Los Angeles, California, where my mother moved, my sister, Etta, and me when I was 11. That was back in 1941, just before World War II broke out. We moved from Harlem to L.A. to Los Angeles. And as I grew up there, 11, 12, 13, 14, that, that age level, People noticed that uh, what they thought was a propensity to talk in public, and they began to encourage me to be a pastor, to be a preacher. And by the time I went to Pine Forge at age 16, uh, I had already pretty much decided that I wanted to be a, a pastor, and I went there with that in mind. They encouraged me at Pine Forge. And by the way, this was the first year of Pine Forge's operation. So you, you were part of the congrats. original
0: class of Pine Forge.
1: I didn't finish there. I went to the 11th grade. and went back to L.A. and graduated in the second graduating class from Los Angeles Academy oh. in 1948. But for the 11th grade, I was at Pine Forge in its first year of wow. operations. Wow. So uh, when I came back from Pine Forge, I'd already done some speaking there in my junior academy year. And when I got back home um, in Los Angeles for the twelfth grade, they really had me up talking so by the time it was to go to college uh, I was fully fully dedicated to the proposition of being a pastor
0: wow so you by the time you got to college you were you you felt the call of ministry, you were ready to go, you had your speaking um you had some time to speak, and you were recognized for being a speaker. Now, Dr. Rock, is is that a common theme you've heard that apparently preachers, uh, like or pastors, they have a propensity as when they're young to speak? Is that something that you've noticed in your years of ministry that is just something that's said that people can just see a preacher in the making?
1: <laughs> I I think it is often the case, but by no means always the case. Okay, in a lot of cases, people suddenly turn from other professions or callings to the ministry in in their late teens or early 20s even. Um, I've known both. But yeah, I, I, yes, I, I would say that quite often the the group think, the group think, which is what the church members think about you and what others see in you is a lot more pronounced and what you think of yourself in that area. In other words, people see, and see traits in you when you're not feeling it. They see traits in you and they express it to you and that helps you to contemplate and to think about it. So it is definitely a, a factor, yes.
0: Okay. So Dr. Rock, that was the... that was. So you grew up, you spent some time, you grew up in Los Angeles after moving from Harlem and After you started, you attended Oakwood University, if I have that correct, correct? I did. I did. So you attended Oakwood, and I know a lot of my friends and colleagues who've got a chance to attend Oakwood, there's always this kind of uh, rustling that, especially if you're doing theology, was that, what were you planning to study when you went to Oakwood?
1: Oh, I was all in in, into ministry. In fact, when I graduated from Los Angeles Academy, um, they had a a freshman's day, a freshman day at La Sierra. And I intended to go there. In fact, we went down there and I signed up to go to La Sierra. But meanwhile, my uncle, Charles Bradford, who I mentioned just a moment ago, Mm -hmm. was already at Oakwood. He was five years older than I. And he wrote me and called me and said, Calvin, if you're going to be a pastor, you really need to come to Oakwood. Don't go anywhere else but Oakwood, which is where he was just leaving at the time and that influenced me more than anything else to go to oakwood
0: okay so you got influenced by the late great uh dr bradford um dr elder bradford um yeah who was your uncle so my mother's
1: youngest brother your
0: mother's youngest brother
1: The, the youngest child of that etta little john Later Ed John Bradford, who was one mm-hmm. of the first students, one of the original sixteen at Oakwood, who, when she finished her nursing at Oakwood pre-nursing, was sent to Melrose Sanitarium in the Boston area, where she was a chambermaid for Ellen White herself, who was there doing some uh, refreshing and wow. getting some rest so
0: wow, okay so dr rock you when you attended Oakwood. Um. Did I know my generation and my colleagues, we, there's this kind of unspoken, but spoken kind of conversation that, you know what, I'm going to go to Oakwood and I'm going to be a change agent. I'm going to be, I'm going to be this, that, and the other. One day I'm going to be a conference president. One day I'm going to be, I'm going to be a GC president. One day I'm going to be the pastor of Oakwood University Church, or I'm going to be the pastor of one of these large, large churches. I'm going to do all these great things. So Dr. Rock, the question I'll ask as a person new into ministry is is that what did you have that kind of thought when you went to oakwood and started off as a freshman where tell me about that experience going to oakwood i know we were going to talk about um all the things that you've done in your later life um but when you were at oakwood is that something that is that kind of the mindset that you may have had or what would you give that count what would you say to to that question
1: no i i really dreamed of being a pastor i I, I just even then I had this yearning to be the shepherd of a flock. I didn't have any visions of being an officer or executive in the structure. Um, by the time I left, however, I had become enamored with uh, E. E. Cleveland's evangelistic prowess. Mm. So I. I think I can honestly say that I left Oakwood with one intention and hope and that was being a pastor evangelist. In fact, I I was so awed by E E Cleveland. You got to remember I left Oakwood in 1952 and that was about the height the the um, the tip of his popularity. I I think he even gained more in some of the years after that, but for us at Oakwood, when he would come by and speak or when we'd hear about the marvelous baptisms that he was having in the Florida area and Carolinas and all around, I wanted to be an evangelist. And mm. uh, when I left Oakwood, that's what I had in mind. Being a pastor evangelist, I never thought about conference presidency or anything like that. Certainly not the presidency of Oakwood. In fact, I left Oakwood in my junior year because I owed so much money. My mother had no means of paying my way. She was a single parent who raised us and uh, she couldn't be of much help at all. So I had to really work my way through And the members of the church back at Wadsworth, it was called, now it's university, would send money to help. But I worked day and night. I milked cows. I had to be down at the dairy at 4.30 in the morning, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning. And before that, I I fired the furnaces. I had to shove coal. They had coal furnaces. I had to shovel coal in the furnaces so that the buildings would be warm at 6 o'clock, 7 when the students got up. And I worked so hard at Oakwood, and I never was able to um, to balance the budget with Oakwood. In fact, I was put out of school. Wow. I was told I couldn't go to school anymore in my junior year, I think I was, or maybe the latter part of my sophomore year. And I can remember being on top of Green Hall. The building was later named, and banging on nails while my colleagues were going to school, including my girlfriend who was the president's daughter and they would I hope I did they wouldn't see me but I I had no pleasure in being up there <laughs> banging on nails and they were going to school and it was cold it was it was hard I had a hard time I didn't I didn't learn much Greek Elder Rogers gave me a C and I mean he gave it to me because I was sleeping all through Greek and I did the best I could so one of my junior year, when the president of the South Atlantic Conference, H.D. Singleton, said, we heard about you. We want you to come and we'll take you whenever you get ready. I'm still a junior. I said, well, I'm ready now. Uh, but I'll finish the f- first part of my senior year, which I did. And I left with nine hours that I finished through correspondence. But I became a functioning pastor at... Uh, in one of the fields in South Carolina it's Columbia Sumter South Carolina Augusta Georgia um, at the age of 21 wow. in January in January of 1952 and as I said I finished my correspondence and that's another story but I did finally finish in 1954 I was too busy. Preaching and having evangelistic meetings and trying, trying to, to duplicate the the methodologies and consequences of Elder Cleveland, who was just a giant hero in my eyes.
0: Wow! Now, Doctor Rock, that is like just hearing that in the fir- your your experiences and and now to the listeners, they may have heard, they may be sitting in wonder like I am, that this is my first time hearing in great in this great detail your story, and you know you know you're one of those people like that has that is a legend at Oakwood University and hearing that you had challenges at Oakwood financially and that you had to work and and that your you did not have what would be considered a traditional you know go four years paid for by your parents then you get picked up and go somewhere but no. that is really encouraging Dr. Rock not only to me thinking it through my lens and my experience, but also I think it's really encouraging for a lot of the students at Oakwood today. And that will come that a part of their experience may not be the traditional, but it sounds like God's favor still wins out at the end.
1: Yeah. I, I was so sleepy by 10 o'clock. I think Greek was at 10 and I'd been up since four, four 30, <laughs> You know, I, I I just couldn't couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I just would fall asleep in my desk. And uh, when I left, I'd gone to summer schools um, during after my freshman year, my sophomore year, I attended summer school, first of all in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where my uncle Charles was having evangelistic meetings. I went with him, uh, and then I had done summer school work at UCLA back home in either my first or second summer away from college and taking a few courses so actually when I left even though my class didn't finish until June of 1952 and they had about 16 more hours to flush out I had just nine but given my given the money I owed and how tired I was I was glad to get out of Oakwood and I didn't I can't say I hated Oakwood, but boy, I had a negative, negative feeling about Oakwood. Wow. Uh, I had, I had uh, been courting the president's daughter and the president wasn't very happy about that. And that's another story. Wow. <laughs> but, but, uh, people, I, I didn't have a lot of clothes to wear. I had one suit when I went to Oakwood that was given to me by a good church member in L.A. at Wattsworth Church there, Brother Kit Payne. And by that time, I was, what, when I got there, 18, and I was not tall, tall, tall like the Giants of today, but I was about 6'2", and weighed about 200 pounds and long arms and legs, (laughs) and this man gave me, and he was about 5'10", or 9', And and kind of plump. And I had this suit that didn't fit. And when I stood up to teach, they asked me to be a Sabbath school teacher my first year at Oakwood. And when they had students teaching Sabbath school classes and I was too embarrassed to stand up when they said, will the teachers stand for prayer? I had to fold my arms like I was thinking to try to hide the threadbare suit that I wore. It was was hard. It was hard. And when I left Oakwood, I, I felt like I was escaping something uh, very harsh and hard, and I never wanted to see Oakwood again. I was, I was just, and not that I didn't think that the children, the young folk, were bad. And I knew students loved me. I had a good, good teachers, and Dr. Dykes, and I was a reader for Frank Hill and Dr. Mosley. And Mosley was Muhammad Ali's teacher, but it was so hard. It was just so hard staying awake and working and trying to dress and look right in front of the other people. And then having the social issue with my later wife's father, who was the president and all the money, I didn't want to see Oakwood again. Honestly, I didn't. Wow. And it took it took a few years for me to um, overcome that. But I guess after about 10, 12 years, (laughs) it wore (laughs) off and I organized an Oakwood chapter. In fact, when I was sent down to uh, Miami, Florida, which I arrived where I arrived about, oh, what, seven or eight years later, really. And uh, gradually, uh, I was asked to go back to Oakwood for a um, baccalaureate in 57, I guess it was. So, yeah, I went back about five years later and, and things cooled off as far as that feeling of having escaped a harsh reality and uh, who who would have thought that i would go back 19 years later to be the 18th president
0: so dr rock now now help me with this so you 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 graduated and so you got your bachelor's degree from from oakwood from once oakwood.
1: i finished the uh, what's now griggs university but it was just long distance education um, that the general conference offered, I I got my, uh, I finished. The only reason I finished is because Clara, the president's daughter, told me she wasn't going to marry me unless I had a college education. Okay. I don't think I ever would have finished because I was so busy having 10 efforts trying to do like Elder Cleveland and working in churches. 10 effort in Columbia, South Carolina, 10 effort in something, South Carolina, 10 effort in Augusta, Georgia, 10 effort in... In Sanford, Florida, or a evangelistic meeting in Sanford, Florida, in Winter Park, and in uh, Orlando, every place they sent me in those several first several years, I was evangelizing more than anything else, and not not really concentrating. But she said, "Look, we can't get married unless you finish." So I finished finally, and uh, we married. We married in '53, and that was too late. And I, I didn't go down to March. Her father, uh, who was my president, when I sent a letter and said, I'm I'm through, sir, I need my diploma, he told me, we don't give diplomas over the fence. You got to come down here and get it. But when I, told him, <laughs> when I told him I couldn't, I was too busy, they finally awarded me my diploma in absentia in 1954.
0: Wow, okay, 1954. So, Doctor Rock, now you you said that when you you were busy in the vineyard, you're you're freshly married, and you're ministering throughout the it, what sounds like throughout all over the place. So, this is during the you, you said you graduated in in the fifties.
1: I left in fifty two. You
0: left in fifty two. So in
1: January fifty two, and began my ministry in January of fifty two.
0: Okay, so in January fifty two. Um, could you paint the picture of the kind of social, right? So I I can look at the history book and kind of surmise, but what is the social landscape of the South and and the country at that time? Because um, one of the things that is at least apparently clear from the outside looking in is when you want to talk about social justice or um, how the church interfaces with um, political or social issues, there's no other name Um, that you want to talk as a resource than Dr. Calvin Rock. So what would be, so could you, can you help paint the landscape? Because um, the wealth of knowledge that we see throughout your books um, and your, your writings, could you tell us how you, you went, go from student um, student to preacher to this um, purveyor of knowledge when it comes to the topics of social justice? How can you kind of paint that picture for us?
1: Well, it began back in church school when I was in the 6th, 7th, 8th grade back in Los Angeles. Well, even before then, back in Harlem in, in the early years, I was aware of cultural difference, but only because of two incidents, really. One was a... Uh, a time, I must have been 11, well, 10, because I left when I was 11, just shortly before I left New York to go to California. Um, a group of young men in, at Ephesus, where my mother was church clerk at the time, went to play softball at a park. Um, and while we were there, i they were older than I. Actually, I was the youngest in the group. They had seen me play a little bit, and I was an, an avid sports <laughs> uh, lover and was always involved in whatever little things we did. So they took me with them. These fellows were like 15, 16, some of them. And while we were out at this park, uh, a large group of white fellows came from somewhere and ran us out of the park, and a fight ens- ensued. And uh, our fellows got bloodied up pretty badly, and they had to run back to 123rd and Lenox, uh, where the church is located, and I ran along with them. Now, fortunately, these white boys didn't beat on me. I guess I was too small compared to the older ones. But I remember running with this crowd, trying to keep up with the older fellas, getting back to safety, and— I'll never forget that, and, and the feeling of being overwhelmed by white people, or by yeah, by white folk. Wow, uh, that that stuck with me. And seeing my older brothers getting whipped up, and they were they tried to fight, but they just had to run. They were overwhelmed. The other thing I remember is going on picnics with the church when I was nine and ten, in the and my early years of age 11, to uh, I think it was called Bear Mountain or something like that. We had to get on a boat and go to some little mountain uh, up the Hudson River, I suppose it was or is. And they always told us when we got there, now don't get involved with those people over there. Stay right here, stay right here. And I, I was curious because I could look over and the people from whom we had to stay right here were white people. Mm. And the other thing that that I guess this is the third matter, but Joe Lewis was in his prime in those years. And his fights were always on Friday night. And Harlem would be very quiet while the fight was going on, except when he started winning. And the walls were thin and being an Adventist we couldn't listen to fights on friday night but sabbath morning when the deacons would take up the offering they would have a pep in their step Mm. (laughs) and we always knew who won the fight because it was it would be reflected in the way people acted and there'd be parades on sunday saturday and sunday negroes would be in the street parading because joe lewis had won the fight and if he lost, which he did just very infrequently, one was to Billy Kahn in that famous defeat he had, which he revenged uh, dramatically later on. But when he lost, the whole the whole whole of Harlem was sad. But Joe Lewis and his battles against white opponents was another way that we were made aware of uh, the differences, white and black animosities even. But then, when I moved, when we went to California, it was a different atmosphere. There weren't so, you know, it wasn't there wasn't a matter of blacks and whites only, but there were Spanish and and people from the uh, well, mm-hmm. islands of uh, Tonga and Samoa and wherever mm-hmm. Polynesians and others and Asians, of course, and Latin American Spanish, but there was still uh, in a smaller in smaller ways uh, ways that were less observable tensions between white and black, but that isn't what got to me. What got to me was more than anything else, because I didn't have a big personal problem with white and black in California. when we first went there, but I was, if an avid reader of newspapers and especially black newspapers back there there were a number of very prominent newspapers produced by claude barnett who was the first uh, as i understand it and remember the first journalist to put together the associated negro press the anp and he had papers all over the country particularly in the larger cities like Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Detroit, and overseas, a lot of outlets in Africa and some other places. And these papers, including the regular daily papers of the city, but particularly these portrayed blacks coming home from the war. Remember, this was my early adolescence, 1941 to 1948. When I went to 46 and then later in the 48, when I graduated from LA Academy, but particularly until the end of the war in 46, when I left for Pine Forge, there were pictures of African soldiers being bludgeoned, being murdered, being stoned, being shot in their uniforms. It was ugly. It was awful. Yeah. And, I, and I became very, very incensed is the best way to put it and i developed what was a a burning desire to do something about and what could i do but i just wanted to do something and i did some things which were not nice in my neighborhoods to white property along with some other black fellows my age but it wasn't anything you know that made the newspaper but we 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 made sure that they were uncomfortable and we would run in the darkness of night and it it was bad but I wasn't converted thoroughly at that time and uh, I would read the newspapers and see these black soldiers hanging from tree leaves strange Mm. tree limbs strange fruit as Mm. the song said and I see their children and their wives and see them shot down. And it happened all over the South who resented uh, Blacks, particularly who came back thinking that they were something because they'd been to France and Germany. But they had learned to shoot and fight and they would shoot back. And it was the cause of a lot of riots and a whole lot of bloodshed. So that when in school they would sing, they they would do the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. I never said it. Mm. I never said it. I never said it. And I wondered how our teachers could teach us, tell us that we had to say that. It was, to me, it was a lie, just a lie. And the same thing in church on Sabbath morning, when, when the brethren and sisters were saying, we are not divided, on with Christian soldiers, all one body, we, one in faith and one in charity. I'd say, how can they lie? They're lying. They're lying on the Sabbath. And it, it, I, I would stand there in tears and I wouldn't tell anybody, but it was just dripping my heart and soul as a young fellow. So um, when I graduated from, I just kept the, to myself. I didn't say anything. Went on to Pine Forge, went on to Oakwood in Alabama and surely didn't say anything there because I didn't have any trouble except when I was 18 leaving L.A. On, trailway bus, on the trailway bus, and we crossed the line into Texas. The driver got up and told me to go to the back of the bus, and I refused to do it, and he opened the door, said he was going to call the cops, and they were going to put me in jail. And it was in the evening. It was getting dark, and I didn't want to be in jail my freshman year at Oakwood, so I went to the back of the bus so I could get to Oakwood. But I, things were quiet there. But when I went into the ministry in the South, and um, I saw what was going on, My family and I were subjected to some uh, indiscreet um, refusals at Adventist hospitals and with Adventist, white Adventist hospitals Mm. in in Florida when we were there in the middle 50s. And I saw what was happening in the schools and I applied to go to the University of Miami and I couldn't go because. I was black and I wanted to go to school because I had been denied in college and I was thirsty. I wanted to study, I wanted badly so that I didn't have to repeat the same old bromides and hackneyed phraseologies. I heard some ministers, many of our ministers using the same thing over and over again. I wanted to be erudite and I wanted to be clean and I wanted to be knowledgeable, but I didn't have it. I didn't have it. Mm I wanted to do evangelism, but I didn't want to use the same old same old techniques that I was seeing in some of my brethren. So I had this this thirst and um I wanted to study and when I got to they couldn't do it, couldn't do it in the Carolinas, couldn't do it in uh, the middle years in Orlando and my and Winter Park. Couldn't do it a little later down in Miami when I got there. But when I got to Detroit in 1962, 10 years after leaving Oakwood, I did start on a master's degree and that gave me insights into society that informed my burning uh, with regard to justice. And it gave me categories and uh, principles of sociology. And that's the, Degree that I earned there, a master's degree in sociology from the University of Detroit, that helped me to channel, to channel my fires and to um, be not just a participant, which I was in in Miami and Detroit. I was part of the Ministerial Alliance and things we did in those years, and you recall that the Equal The separate but equal proclamation of 1896 didn't Mm -hmm. end until 1954. And by that time, I was two years out of Oakwood, and I was 24 years of age when that ended. And I was a part of all the hardship and the drama that existed as the United States government tried to apply that annulment in the schools in Alabama, and uh, Georgia and Florida and the other parts of the country. So that gives you a little background as yeah. to um, what I experienced and how I grew into it.
0: So, Doctor Rock, now you became, like we mentioned in the beginning, that you served. Um, you're we are both Seventh Day Adventists. Um, you're we're both Seventh Day Adventist ministers. We're, you know, I stand on your shoulders. And what I've heard, Doctor Rock, a lot of. Um, similar frustration i guess i can call it of the seeing the issue of um racial inequity and injustice in our country and it obviously the country is made of people who attend church so how how could how does one look at the landscape of society and look at the landscape of our church and still say it has merit when it comes to the issues of social justice? How does, um, how does, if you don't go to Oakwood and you're not steeped and hear these, you know, hear the legacies of yours and Dr. Bradford and, you know, the experiences of some of the great minds that um, their names are all over Oakwood's campus, right. Or E.E. E. Cleveland, and you know, the legends. How does a young black person, a young black man, woman, child how do they hold on to staying firm into a church that by all accounts started by the prophecies of of a white woman and are predominantly well not predominantly but their population um, in some areas are predominantly white like how do we hold on to how do we hold fast when this faith started with the cre- the the visions of a white person how does a black person? reconcile those two contrary um ideals especially when there has not been a black general conference president
1: there there are a number of ways that an individual a black individual is able to come to terms with that question in fact uh my dissertation at vanderbilt which was finished in 1984 is titled, uh, Racial Identity Versus Denominational Loyalty, The Dilemma of Black Seventh-day Adventist Leaders. Wow. In other words, the dissertation asks the question, can you be truly black and truly Seventh-day Adventist at the same time? Don't you have to give up something to be truly black and be an Adventist? On which end do you have to sacrifice? That's, that, that's the whole thrust of the dissertation. Um,
0: Dr. Rock, I, wind... I may want to take a look at your dissertation. Uh, well, you're
1: welcome. I... If you remind me, I'll send you a copy. I have a few copies. I'll be happy to send you a copy. It's published, but it hasn't been distributed and advertised, but I'll be happy to share it with you. Uh, the answer to that question is yes, you can be truly black and truly Adventist. But you have to work at it.
0: What do you mean by that? What is that what does that working you, okay. look like?
1: Okay. You have to understand several oh. things. Well, and but before I tell you what those things are, let me let me tell you this. You and your generation and the generations coming up behind you and the generations just in front of you don't have nearly as difficult a time as as rational, as rationalizing that. And understanding that, as my generation did, mm. and my generation didn't have nearly the 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 problem of thinking it through as the generation before them did. Mm. Just think of the people back there in the twenties and thirties and forties, and you know, and you pick me up in the fifties because that's when I left Oakwood. But I mean, think of those other generations and, and the time they had when before separate but equal was annulled. Separate but equal, well, let's go back to slavery. From the emancipation on, from 18, well, let's go back to 1619. From 1619 when slavery began until the end of slavery in the middle 1860s, we were in incarceration. And from the middle 1960s, until the middle nineteen fifties, middle eighteens, pardon me, sixties, till the middle nineteen fifties, we were under segregation. Reginald.
0: Yeah.
1: Segregation was the law. It was the, the rule. Law. Wow, yeah. From for fifty-eight years from nineteen from eighteen ninety-six to nineteen fifty-four. And before that, from 1863 65 until 1896 it wasn't the law but it was what they were doing so it was incarceration for 250 for 244 years mm-hmm. and then it was segregation mm. for the next 100 years or so almost uh, by law And in fact more 90 yeah, some years by law law so for 340 years or so, until 1954, black Adventists were socially and legally prevented from thinking, uh, hopefully, from even attempting to be equal. Wow! So how hard was it? Yeah, it, it was. Cool. It was. It it was so hard that uh, only in the judgment will the volume of black martyrs who died fighting it and black innocents who died and were shot and killed along country roads all over the South ever ever come to the attention well it won't come to the attention of the same, but will ever be ac- will ever be accurately chronicled. So I want to say that that my generation had it better your generation had it even better and the generation today, um, uh, they they don't know how how well off they are, really, but they are. Wow. That's number one. It's much better today. Number two, um, it must be remembered, as you've already said that early Adventism and pre-early Adventism, way back to Millerites, the Millerites, the Millerites were social activists. They were radical. Miller and his people were radical In terms of their address To to slavery They joined in the abolitionist movement And when the abolitionist movement Ended With the war and its completion And the early Adventist church began Our early Adventists As you've already said Were also activists They were very much involved In deploring Segregation and the inhumanity of human beings to one another. And when you read the writings of James White and uh, Uriah Smith and John Loughborough and all those Joseph Bates and all those other Adventists, they were rough on American slavery. And they were terrorists on what was happening to the recently freed slaves as they. Angry South began to take out their resentments on them. So that's helpful to know that the Adventist Church began in activism, in social justice activism. It also helps to know, and, and it's a part of what I worked on, what helped me, that Ellen White, who
0: is the primary
1: Seventh day Adventist of all was a frank, outright critic, not only of just America, but the church for what it was doing in her days. So that's a part of working it out. The other part of working it out is to remember that even though the Adventist church was slow, getting into the rhythm of separate but equal, uh, of the the sense of the nation after separate with equal was annulled. It was annulled in 1954 from 1896 to 1954. We operated under what was called gospel expediency, which is the lingo for, look, you folk can't come in because if you do, the white people won't come. So you need to stay out there and do it yourself. And of course that doing yourself was for decades without black leadership it was you do it yourself but we'll tell you what to do it was only when we got black conferences where we did it ourselves with indigenous leadership and now, that didn't happen until the mid middle 40s
0: now dr rock even
1: before separate but equal wasn't So, but what i'm getting at is that for all those years all those years during which the battle was waged our brothers and sisters did the best they could and they they were they were faithful as they fought the battle, but that the the at the break in nineteen fifty-four, when the church finally, not just this church, but when America was told you can no longer keep blacks out of your churches and schools and your hospitals, etc. your other institutions. Our black brothers stood up and our black brothers did what they had to do. And the church finally, in 1965, it took them 11 years, but they finally came out and said, We will get on the bandwagon of desegregation. Now, they said some nice things between 54 and 65, like you must love each other and the Lord wants us to go to heaven and love each other. But It was only in 65 when the church came out and said, look, no more segregation in our schools. Everything will be desegregated. But the church said it. And even though they should have done it earlier, they said it. And today our church is totally desegregated. So this generation has not nearly the need for animosity or the need for doubt, or the need for embarrassment, or the need for anything else, because the church is desegregated. Now there are biased whites in the system, but it's not the church. So when I say you gotta work it out, you gotta think of all these things. The the, the church is not biased, and the proof of that is That we've had two presidents, and one is now in office, Elder Bryan, where America has had one. People ask, what about the GC president? That's a false equivalence. Mm, You can't compare African-American sociality with world sociality.
0: Wow, Dr. Rock, say that one more time. Say that one more time for us.
1: Is it. president of fourteen different divisions, each of which would love to have a president. We are in competition in North America with thirteen other divisions who would like to have a president. But black Adventists in North America are two percent of the World Church. So how can this two percent of the World Church feel bad because it can't elect a world president?
0: Dr. Rock, that's that is that is that is a mind blowing realization.
1: Excuse me, I didn't hear you.
0: That's a. I'm sorry. That's a mind blowing revelation. That yeah. How how?
1: But, but let let me and, and I'm going to stop in a minute because I don't want to forget this. We are two percent of the world church. That's all we are, and we can't we can't say well they're prejudice against us because we don't have we we have the power to elect a division president and we've done that and that is the equivalence that we need to talk about and we need to remember that blacks in america have elected one president of american territory and we've had two so we're doing better than the black citizen in america
0: wow wow that's amazing and dr rock you said you wanted to say one more thing that you didn't want to forget
1: well, that that was really it. I just wanted to finish that point, yeah. but you got it already. Perfect. And uh, so when I say yes, you can be a very proud Black Seventh Day Adventist, but you got to work at it. You cannot be, you cannot uh, be naive about the matters that I've just mentioned to you. Not the least of which, again, is that the most proficient, the most used by God the most effective member we've ever had is Ellen G. White, who says in the little book, and I'm sure you have it, uh, gospel, what is it? The book that details all of the, her writings to um, about African Americans, the Southern whole work. sociality, Southern work, yeah. She says, And that's not where it's a quote from another place that I can't remember, but it's a quote where she says, I will not die a coward. And she goes on to say how God sent down forces to relieve the blacks from slavery. And he said, I will go down and let my people go. She even calls us her people. Wow. So uh, when you look at Ellen White, and when you consider these other variables that I've mentioned,
0: you can be a good seven of the and hold your head high. I do. Dr. Rock, thank you for sh- saying that. And, you know, uh, we're going to take a quick break. But what is really important that I just, it's just mind boggling that then with hearing what you've shared and how LNG White has been, and I think it's really important for us to look at the, all of LNG White's writings. And I think, um, and we'll cover this in, your, in the second part of um, of our conversation. Um, about social justice, but um, her work and what she has said about social justice issues—that there may have been some whitewashing going on when it comes to um to Lng White, and so and I mean that not in a joking manner, but there may have been some whitewashing. So what we'll do, <laughs> what we'll do is it we'll
1: sounds, take. it sounds like a pun. It sounds like yeah. A pun. <laughs> so what
0: we're gonna do is we're gonna take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this break. Thank you so much for joining us for part one. So Dr. Rock is so gracious that um, this conversation was so much longer than just this hour window that you got to hear today. And so in our second part, we're gonna discuss a lot of the questions and continue our conversation about social justice, about the role the church has in um, politics and other issues that you know, the world may be wondering about when it comes to how can the Adventist church be relevant in the midst of social unrest, political unrest, and all the things that are happening. And we're so grateful and blessed that Dr. Rock has agreed to have been an extended portion and to being on so long. So this is not just the end. This is actually just part one. And so next week, you'll be able to hear part two of our conversation where we dive into more detail about social justice, the word of God, ministry, and whatever Dr. Rock wants to tell us. Was he not absolutely captivating? So if you appreciate Dr. Rock, if you appreciate this podcast, do me a favor, do the church a favor, do Dr. Rock and I a favor, engage, engage, engage. If you have a question for Dr. Rock or myself, feel free to go ahead and go to the comment section of the podcast or submit a question in the comment section or go to our digital decision card and throw in a question. And we will see you next time. God bless.